God says, I'm going to rescue my people Israel. I'm going to redeem them from Egypt and slavery to show who I am to all of humanity. And God is still doing that through His redeemed ones. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 14 of a series titled This Is Your Life. Let's be honest, as humans, we tend to be self-centered much of the time. Think about it. How often do you consider that life isn't about you? Sure, you think about your problems, concerns, and activities, but as you'll be reminded today, God has a great cosmic eternal plan to put His character on display and to do it in clear sight of all humanity, and in particular, to perform it for all He redeems. And for those who are His, by an act of sovereign grace alone, He has made us a part of His plan. What exactly is that plan? Let's find out as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Paul is saying that the wealth of God's grace cannot be compared to anything else. There's nothing like it in the universe. It is incomprehensible to our finite minds in its fullness, and it cannot be measured. God has put His incomparable, incomprehensible, immeasurable wealth of grace on display. That's what God has displayed. Now that brings us to a third question. How does God display His grace? How does He put this grace on display? Look again at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show or prove or demonstrate the surpassing, the hoopervalo riches of His grace in kindness toward us. This is how God displays His grace. Now folks, that is a remarkable statement. Because just four verses before, we are told that we are the objects of God's eternal wrath. And now just four verses later, we are told that we are the objects of God's eternal kindness. What a remarkable change God has produced. What is this word kindness? It's really hard to define with an English word. When... The Greeks used this word kindness to refer to things, and they often did. It means mild and pleasant as opposed to harsh or hard or sharp or bitter. For example, it's used in the New Testament this way. In Luke chapter 5, verse 39, it's used of wine, wine that has mellowed with age. It's not got a harsh taste. It is mellowed and softened with age. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, that famous verse where Jesus describes being his disciple as taking his yoke. It's interesting, since Jesus took on his father's business after Joseph's death, he became a carpenter, and Justin Martyr says that Jesus made farm implements, including yokes and plows. And so he uses that image of yokes. He says, my yoke is, and it's translated easy. It's the same word translated, or same family of words translated kindness here. My yoke is kind. My yoke isn't harsh. 
It isn't severe. It isn't hard. When the word is used of people, it means kind as opposed to harsh or severe. For example, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it's contrasted with severity. You have the kindness of God and the severity of God, and those two are considered to be opposites. So kindness, then, is the opposite of harsh or severe. It is tender love in action. God displays His grace. Listen carefully. God displays His grace by not treating those who deserve His wrath with harshness or severity, but instead treating them with kindness. This, too, is the character of our God. God demonstrated this kindness for all men to see when He sent Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 refers to the coming of Christ as when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. God is kind even to the unrepentant, even to those who are His enemies. And He is kind to them for the purpose of leading them to repentance. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. As he indicts all of mankind for, for its sin, he says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Don't you know that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? God is kind to his enemies in order to provide a platform for their repentance. What is this kindness? I think Paul explains it to the crowd in Lystra. Turn back to Acts chapter 14. In Acts 14, he explains this kindness. He sort of exegetes it a little bit. You remember the scene there. Paul and Barnabas show up. They heal somebody, and pretty soon the, the people there in Lystra are ready to worship them as gods. And so Paul and Barnabas rush in to tell them, don't do that, stop, we're just men. Verse 15 of Acts 14. This is what they said to them. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the good news to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Here comes the kindness of God to all men in that he did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. He satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says, listen, look at the good things you enjoy in this life. That is the kindness of God to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you live enjoying the kindness of God. He has given you so many wonderful things that enrich this life. Yes, this life is filled with trouble and trial and sin, but there are also many wonderful things that enrich our time here, and those are the demonstration of God's kindness to you. And He intends that those things would bring you to true repentance, where you would acknowledge your sin before Him and come and embrace His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's good. He's kind but God especially shows this kindness 
to those sinners whom he has chosen and set apart for himself. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, we read of that. God shows kindness to those he saves. By the way, before I leave this point, this quality of kindness is something that all of us are believers to show to each other as well. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. The opposite of harshness and bitterness and heaviness and severity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, As those who have been chosen of God put on a heart of kindness. Treat other people the way God has treated you. But this quality in God called kindness is not only how God treated us in the past when we were unbelievers. It's not only how God treated us when he sent Jesus. But listen carefully. This describes how God plans to treat us throughout eternity. Ephesians 2.7 says, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace by being kind toward us in Christ Jesus. For eternity... God plans to treat us with kindness as opposed to harshness and severity. How can a holy God respond to those of us who have accumulated such guilt like that? On what basis can God show kindness? Well, look at the last three words in the verse. In Christ Jesus. Every kindness God shows sinners was purchased at the cross. That's true of unregenerate, unbelieving sinners. The fact that God lets a sinner live a moment longer than his first sin is a demonstration of his kindness purchased at the cross, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Every temporal blessing human beings in rebellion against God enjoy was purchased at the cross. God vindicated his righteousness, Paul says in Romans 3, in letting sinners live, in tolerating sinners at the cross. And for us who are believers, this is true as well. Listen carefully. The reason I am accepted today is that I am in Christ. The reason that I will be accepted for the rest of this earthly life is that I am in Christ. And we all understand that. But it's easy, isn't it, when we begin to think of eternity that we kind of tweak our thinking and we think, well, yeah, I know I can never get into heaven on my own. I can never get into heaven without Christ. But once I'm there and once I'm thoroughly forgiven and once I'm perfect, somehow from that point we kind of begin to think that we deserve to be there. Listen, we will never deserve to be there. That is the devil's lie. From the moment I came to Christ throughout this life and until the endless ages sweep across eternity, the only reason I will ever be accepted in the Father's presence is because I am in Christ, because He is permanently my representative and I am permanently united to Him as the source of my spiritual life. Like the vine and the branches, eternal life will for eternity flow from Him into me. If it were possible for this relationship to be severed, and thank God it's not, but if it were possible for it to be severed, even if I had lived in perfection for 10,000 years, at the moment that relationship was severed, I would be immediately damned. I would deserve the eternal wrath of God. 
The fact that God continues throughout eternity to show kindness to us is not because we will ever deserve it. It's because Christ deserves it. And we're connected to Him. God's grace is incomparable. It is incomprehensible. It is immeasurable. And by treating us with kindness for all eternity, God puts the riches of His grace on display. Hendrickson recounts a Roman noblewoman was asked about her jewels. Where are your jewels? Then as now, wealthy people delighted in the luxuries of life. And she responded to the question by calling her two sons. And she put her arms around them and said, these are my jewels. Hendrickson goes on to say, throughout eternity, the redeemed will be exhibited as the jewels of the grace of God. That brings us to a fourth question. This question is raised by this text, but it's not answered here. The question is, who is the audience? Who is the audience? When there's an exhibition, when there's a display, when you're showing something, there's someone expected to see it and to benefit from it. For whom does God set forth as the display of His grace, set us forth, To whom is he showing his grace? To whom is he making this display, this exhibition? Scripture gives us three answers briefly. Number one, it's for all of humanity. It's for all of humanity. You remember even back in Exodus chapter 9? In Exodus 9, when God rescued his people Israel from Egypt, that great picture of redemption. You remember what reason God gave? In Exodus chapter 9, he tells Moses, verse 13, I want you to go, stand before Pharaoh, say, let my people go. I'm going to send plagues, verse 14, on you and your servants and your people, so that, here's my reason, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So, So that Pharaoh and the Egyptians could know that he was God. Verse 15, I love this. God says, tell him that if by now... I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been then cut off from the earth. God says, listen, you tell Pharaoh that I'm not trying to destroy him. If I was trying to destroy him, he'd already be gone. Instead, verse 16, but indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. God says, I'm going to rescue my people Israel. I'm going to redeem them from Egypt and slavery to show who I am to all of humanity. And God is still doing that through His redeemed ones. You come to so many Old Testament passages. Just one other that I'll mention, Psalm 67. In Psalm 67, verse 1, the psalmist says, be gracious to me, or excuse me, God be gracious to us and bless us. He's talking about Israel now, the people of God. And cause his face to shine on us. Why? In order that your way may be known to the earth and your salvation among all the nations. Listen, God saves and rescues to put his glory on display to all of humanity. And we are to be that demonstration to all of humanity. There's another audience God had in mind, not only all humanity, but he had us, 
the redeemed in mind. That's hinted at in verse 7 of Ephesians 2. In kindness toward us, that we would benefit from the display. You see that in Revelation as well. In Revelation 4 and 5, if you sort of read those chapters, you see that those who are praising God for His grace that has been displayed in us are the redeemed. They're turning around and saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and and on and on the list goes. So not only does all humanity see and glorify God and His grace, but we glorify God because of His grace put on display in us. But there's a third group that we never think about, and yet the Bible makes much of them. Not only all of humanity, and not only us, you say, well, who else is there? All of the intelligent beings God created besides man, the angelic host, the angels. This is quite interesting as you look at it in the New Testament, and we don't have time to go through it, but let me just give you a couple of references. Look at passages like 1 Corinthians 4.9, 1 Corinthians 11.10, 1 Peter 1.12, and in those passages you will discover the angels watching, being spectators on what's going on in God's work in believers in the world. I want to show you one passage, though. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, because here the Apostle Paul puts it very clearly, what God is doing. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9. Beginning in verse 8, actually, Paul says, I've been given this grace to preach the riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. Why? Verse 10. So that, in order that, here's the reason. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So the church, the redeemed people of God, are going to put the wisdom of God on display. To whom? Look at the rest of the verse to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but there is an audience to the drama of redemption that is occurring on planet earth. And that audience is not just all of humanity, it is not just us who are being saved, but it is the angelic, this intelligent being this universe, I should say, of intelligent beings that God has created. J. Adams writes, God's grand demonstration has been taking place before hundreds of thousands of intelligent beings throughout the universe. There are myriad of these powerful beings that so much is said about in Scripture. And they're watching, and God is putting His character on display for them as well. What are the lessons, very quickly, from this amazing verse for us? There are three of them. Number one, it should give us a sense of humility. Listen, folks, it is not about us. God is doing something far greater. You see, you and I are so bound by time, it's it's hard to think beyond our own lives. We think about our problems and our issues and our sins. But right now, while you're living today on planet Earth, there are five billion plus other people experiencing exactly the same thing. And we are only one generation of thousands of years of human history. They never thought about us, and we rarely think about them unless we're sitting in a history class. And if the Lord tarries, there will be hundreds or thousands of years more with the world filled with people just like us. 
And all of us will live and die on a tiny cosmic speck of dust hurtling through space on the edge of a small galaxy twirling amidst billions and billions of other galaxies. The universe, my friends, is not about us. But God has a great cosmic eternal plan to put his character on display, to do it before all of humanity, to do it before those he redeems, and to do it before all of the intelligent creation that he's made. And for those of us who are his, by an act of sovereign grace alone, he has made us part of that plan. That's very humbling. Your Christian life doesn't begin and end with you. It's not all about you and what you get. You are a small part of a great cosmic eternal plan. Secondly, should provide a sense of assurance. When we look at ourselves and our failures, it's easy for us to begin to doubt whether we'll end up really making it after all, isn't it? And if our salvation were up to us, that would be natural. But my salvation is so much bigger than me. God chose me in eternity past to be part of this grand demonstration that he would put himself on display. And he decided that my salvation would actually display his amazing grace. And if God were to fail in the plan of redeeming me, he would undermine the grand demonstration that he has set up. So I can rest in confidence and assurance that God who began a good work in me will be faithful to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there's a great sense of privilege. A great sense of privilege. Think practically about what Paul is saying here in verse 7. He's saying that in eternity, it's as if God will point to you and say to the angels and to every other intelligent being in the universe, look at him, look at her, and see the greatness of my grace. We will literally be trophies of God's grace. Lloyd-Jones writes, this is to me the most overwhelming thought that we can ever lay hold of, that the almighty, everlasting, eternal God is vindicating himself and his holy nature and being by something that he does in us. God is going to open his last great exhibition at the consummation, and all of these heavenly powers and principalities will be invited to attend. The curtain will draw back, and God will say, look at them. Through us, God is going to vindicate His own eternal wisdom and His majesty and His glory and all the attributes of His holy person to the principalities and the heavenly powers. What privilege. The question that comes to my mind is, why me? Why would God choose me to be part of such a grand demonstration? Often art galleries will solicit collections of a famous painter and they'll feature his work. They'll feature the paintings very carefully with just the right lighting so as to bring out the skill of the painter in light or color or texture or hue. But the point is not the paintings. The point is the skill of the painter. Through God's spiritual rescue of us, we have each become a portrait of God's masterpiece displayed for the universe to see, to examine, to marvel at. We are the exhibition. 
Our salvation isn't the point any more than the individual painting is the point. The point is in this case not only the skill of the artist but the character of the artist as well. The incomparable, incomprehensible, immeasurable grace of God. Our salvation is not all about us. It's all about Him. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part 14 of This Is Your Life. Tom will have part 15 for us next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.